All righty. Cool. All right, lovely to see you. Um, one, little, uh, one little announcement. Um, introduction to St. Luke's. We're running an introduction to St. Luke's lunch on the 6th of November. Uh, that'll be at 12 o'clock after the Sunday service. So if you're new to St. Luke's in the last probably two years, I don't know if we've run any during COVID, uh, and would like to um, come along and find out a little bit of our story and what makes us tick, you, we'd love you to have us join for that. There's a clipboard you can sign up at the info desk or by the giving box, or you can just email ben at stlukeschurch.org.nz or rosie at stlukeschurch.nz. So there you go, one little bit of housekeeping. Uh, last week we had a... Last week I was at an 80s party on uh, Saturday night, so happy birthday to Eloise. Uh, It gets confusing because it was a a 40s party at an 80th, so there you go, happy birthday to Eloise. Yesterday it was Isla's birthday and Isla was 85 yesterday, so happy birthday to Isla. Isla's just delightful. Um, But I did have a moustache left over from the 80s party, and then that got me thinking about an old-school 1982 Bible camp quiz, so we did a Bible camp quiz last Sunday. One of the questions we didn't get to was for the the young people to see if they could name all of the armor of God. Uh, So that took me down the pathway of the armor of God, and then I read the passage in Ephesians from the army of God, about the armor of God. That got me thinking of my time in Sunday school. Uh, I, I had two dear Dutch, a Dutch couple who were my um, Sunday school teachers. Uh, they were about 100 at the time. <laughs> the only thing is that uh, she passed away a few years ago, but the, the gentleman himself passed away either this year or last year at the age of 100. So I have to go back 30-something years. So they felt like they were 100 when they weren't. They were only 70. So they were a lot younger when I had them as the um, Sunday school teachers. And they used to open Sunday school with the song, Welcome to our Sunday school. We're so glad you're here. And with us, you will our stay, God's own word to hear. And then it sent, uh, down from heaven came to save us. I can't remember how the rest of it went, but I remember that. But um, this, the, the armor of God is very much this kind of, it just got me thinking about the armor of God, this Sunday school, famous Sunday school story. And then that got me thinking about, we should do a series one day called um, Sunday School Revisited, because that would be interesting. We should do... We should do David and Goliath and Noah's Ark and the armor of God and a few of these, few of these different things. And then it got me thinking, I don't know if I've heard a sermon on the armor of God as an adult. I'm not sure. I haven't, I've never talked about the armor of God. So I, read, I just read the passage this week just out of my own interest. Uh, and then that got me distracted. And so we're meant to be talking about the parables of Jesus, but we find ourselves with the armor of God this morning. So, sorry. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 20. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith which you, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, for that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. And so I read that, and I was like, oh, we've got to do something with that, because that's incredibly jarring to our 21st century sensibilities. Uh, 21st century Christ followers, we put outside our familiarity with the passage. Most of us will know the passage, but if, if we just imagine kind of listening to it for the first time as adults rather than as children at Sunday school. Uh, there's so much in the passage that's kind of jarring to modern sensibilities. Powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms, the sword of the spirit, the, the mystery of the good news and an ambassador in chains. So there's, you know, it's, it's, we're not far off the plot for the next Thor movie um, if, we, if we're kind of to think through it with some of our more modern sensibilities. It's a, I thought it was a beautifully jarring text to our modern ears. So I thought, hey, let's have a look at that this morning. All right, so let me just read a, a little paragraph I put together. To be a Christian, a Christ follower, is to be many things. It's to be one whose allegiance is to Christ alone, to the King of Kings. It's to be a person of faith, to give intellectual assent to the good news of the gospel, to live an embodied fidelity to the way of Jesus, to place one's existential trust in Jesus. I've talked about that a few different times. There is a story that we go, yeah, yeah, I say yes to that story. The story calls us to a certain way of being. Yeah, I'm gonna, I want to embody that in my life. I want to live faithful to the gospel. And yet within that, there's this, just, this existential trust, just I'm going to entrust this life that I have to God. It's to align one's loves, passions, affections, desires with Christ who prays that God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. To be a Christian is to, to participate in an ongoing journey of coming alive in Christ. I've talked at different times about you have these moments where you feel like you're born again again. And the good news of the gospel is always better than you've just realized. And you just, yeah, I've got this nailed. And then something happens. You're like, oh, I feel like it's just come alive in a whole new kind of way. It's to embrace the morals and ethics of Scripture, the virtues and character of Christ, the practice and disciplines of the saints. It's to be caught up and anchored in, alive to the true story of the cosmos. For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's to allow the totality of your life to be shaped by the story of God. Story of mystery and wonder, so much bigger than our enlightened, scientific, reasonable perspectives. A story of wonder that's so much bigger than our enlightened, scientific, reasonable perspectives. And it has to be. Of course it has to be. If it's a, if it's a story that you're going to invest your whole life into, it's got to be bigger than what we can just make sense of. If we could somehow make sense of it all, we've probably shrunk it down a little bit. So there's, of course there's this aspect where I think the most reasonable of us would say the story has to be unreasonable in some places. Uh, otherwise, I could, I've got it all tied down so easily that can that really be the story? That is the whole story of all of human history and the entire cosmos? Mystery, wonder, so much bigger. The Spirit's invitation into an awareness and an understanding and appreciation of the story, because we're living in this story whether we 
realize it or not or acknowledge it or not. We're living in the story one way or the other. The Spirit's invitation to pay attention to the story. I think you could, you could say it comes via four kind of pathways. It comes via scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. That, that's John Wesley's Wesleyan quadrilateral from back in the day. Each of those dynamics feeding into helping us make sense of the story. Scripture, Christian tradition, our own experiences, reason and thinking. They're all gifts from God via which to be invited into the story and try and make sense of the story and try and understand the story in our own lives. Uh, it's the interplay of each that's the fascinating adventure. Uh, on this graphic, uh, next graphic, which I just stole from Google Images, uh, somebody's added in, so they've gone, they've, they've gone and stereotyped evangelicals as the scripture people. Uh, and then they've made the Catholics are the tradition people and the charismatics, they're the experienced people. Uh, and then those liberals, those liberals with their reason, uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that this morning because uh, I know uh, people in, I know plenty of Catholics that embrace all and plenty of charismatics that embrace all, but it's illustrative and a little bit funny, but somewhat helpful just to get a, a sense of, yeah, 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 there's this, there's, this, there's this experience of God that I've had in my life. One of my experiences was, everyone goes down, me, and then everyone else goes down, and that was, that was an interesting experience, and you try and figure that out, and you know, so they're, they're helpful. Uh, the next slide, I think, I, I like the next one a little bit better. Um, it places tradition, reason, and experience within Scripture. Um, believing the Bible to be a human endeavor as well as divinely inspired, I think that's appropriate to, to, to wrap it all up in Scripture. Um, nevertheless, it's, still, it's the interplay of these things that we're constantly doing as we try to make sense of our own faith, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. As we follow the one who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, where these, these are the things that are, that are guiding us and shaping us and leading us and helping us to kind of pay attention with the Holy Spirit over all of that. At the same time, though, our experience is limited. We have, we, we have limited experiences, so that can't be the thing that trumps everything because, you know, we haven't experienced everything. Uh, I hope you realize you haven't experienced all of life that there is to experience to now make, make the final decision based on everything you've experienced. Uh, but then at the same time, um, our knowledge of tradition is limited. You know, I, I've done a fair amount of study, and the more you study, actually, the more you realize you don't know. It's like, man, the, the Christian tradition is huge. There's, there's 2,000 years worth of stuff to get your head around. This is, I'm feeling like I'm making more sense of it than ever and got way further to go than when I started out. Kind of thing. Um, scripture, we, we, we interpret, we, we do our best to understand, you know, Paul's writing 2,000 years ago, and we're trying to get our head around, what did he mean in that kind of context 2,000 years ago? Paul's reading the Jewish scriptures that were written 400 and 1,500 years before Paul. So the earliest Jewish scriptures, they're 3,500 years old, and we're trying, yeah, how do we make sense of this? What does this passage mean? What's the Leviathan and how does it have anything to do with the elections coming up in New Zealand? None. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It just it help you out there. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with it. So, so we have these, these gifts of God, scripture, tradition, reason, experience. We have these gifts and yet they're limited. We, we're not, we, 
we, we're trying to figure it out. So we have to do that together, of course. We have to do that in community. But it's not like once we get all of us together, now we've all got it figured out. My brother and I, when we were young, used to tell people that between the two of us, we, we knew 90% of all the general knowledge there was to know. That by ourselves that we were rubbish, but if you put the two of us together, we got 90% of it sorted out. And the worst part was people were like, wow, that's amazing. It's like, it, uh, none of that's true. So you get a, you get a crowd together, we're still, still limited. So we, 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 we walk carefully. Um, All of this feeding into how do we understand? How do we make sense of powers of this dark world and spiritual forces and evil and heavenly realms? How, what was Paul saying when he wrote that? What does it mean for us today? We, we, we walk carefully. The outworking of God's salvation in the world is a powerful and divinely driven story that is unfolding by the power of the Holy Spirit, overtaking, overtaking and enveloping all of creation. Um, the Apostle Paul reflects on this not as a 21st century enlightened scientist. He reflects on it as a, as a first century Jewish Christ follower, somebody deeply steeped in the, in the Jewish scriptures. Uh, Paul perceives salvation history as a cosmic battle between Christ and darker agents that he refers to as principalities and powers, uh, all of which have been exposed as fraudulent and defeated in the death and resurrection of Christ. And I love what he writes earlier in the book of Ephesians. He writes that when God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all ruler and authority, power and dominion, in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And the, the passage is about the reality that the principalities of powers, whatever they are, we'll get to them in a minute, but they've been exposed as fraudulent and imposters, and they've been defeated by the cross. The cross of Christ has defeated those things and disempowered them, and the rest of human history is the untangling of that until Christ comes again and all is made well. All manner of things are made well. But the question is, what, are the, what is the nature of these principalities and powers? Uh, I'm going to use the word ontological. Ontological just means how, how a being is made up. It's to have, it's to be a being. It's to have substance. Are these ontological entities of some sort or another, actual beings? I've got, I think there's Gore from the latest Thor movie, so there's Gore. Are they, are they actual beings that if you could see, you could see that, that, that have a name or, or whatever? Is that what it's talking about? Um, or are they real forces, but not actual beings? Well, Paul's inherited worldview is very much one of evil cosmic beings. He, he's imagining real, real agents, real entities, real beings with an ontological makeup of some sort or another. Uh, all ancient people viewed the world like that. Uh, they imagined a storm god. Uh, a sea god, a god of war, a sex god, a wine god, a sun god, a forest god, any, anything that was beyond the ability of humans to control and influence and make happen was deemed to have some being behind it that, that made it work. The, and the sun is one of the most common across all of the indigenous peoples, across all of the ancient peoples. Every, every people group had a sun god of some sort because the sun comes up here and, and then it goes down there and we can't change that or make that happen. And uh, the Aztecs are pretty classically known for when there's an eclipse and things like that and the fear that that would 
bring, like what's happened, the sun's disappeared in the middle of the day, that shouldn't happen, we can't control this, we better make a sacrifice of some sort to keep the gods happy. And so if the harvest isn't good, you obviously haven't made the right sacrifices to the harvest god. If the sun's disappearing in a black circle, we know it to be an eclipse, but for an ancient people, it's like somebody hasn't made the right sacrifice. And if things get worse and worse, the sacrifices get more and more uh, precious, for want of a better word. You might, you might harvest the donkey. <laughs> there you go, poor donkeys. I've just put them as the lowest common thing. Give a donkey! It's like, that didn't work. All right, somebody give a cow. Cow didn't work. It's like, all right, Giselle. It's like, all right, Giselle. Off Giselle. Does that sound dog? Go, Giselle. Uh, of course, we know right through to human sacrifice. People, peoples would sacrifice other human beings because that's the most precious thing. If we can't keep the gods happy with the donkey or the, the cow, or the, we, better, we better sacrifice a person. So this is a common understanding. Any force beyond the control of humans was deemed to either have a benevolent or malevolent or an unpredictable cosmic character behind it. And this was one of the troubles with the gods. How could you tell? If they were happy or unhappy, if they were for you or against you, they were unpredictable. And you didn't know, because if you haven't noticed, storms are kind of unpredictable, unless you work for Niwa, and then you're like, no, there's actually, we can track what happens and how storms work. But if you're living 3,000 years ago, storms are unpredictable. We, we can't do that. I mean, fame, most ancient people had sea gods. Neptune is, is one of them, because the sea, that, well, the sea's a dark and stormy place, and you can't control each demanding sacrifices for favor. Figures that selfishly and madly grasp after, lunge for, seek to take hold of God's good world with no regard or concern for the destruction and the chaos that ensues. Hence the need to sacrifice to them. At least this is the ancient understanding. Uh, in our passage today, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the powers of this dark world, the rulers of darkness, which in the Greek is, uh, this is awesome, in the Greek is cosmos, Kratoros, cosmos, Kratoros. Two words, cosmos meaning the galaxy, the universe, all of creation, the cosmos. Kratoros meaning literally grabber. So these, these forces and these dark forces in heavenly realms are cosmos grabbers. Those that grab apart, grab a hold of something of God's good creation and seek to bring destruction or chaos. So the title of my sermon this morning is Cosmos Grabbers. For everyone that's taking notes, which is none of you, but that's all right. Cosmos Grabbers. All right, theologian Timothy Gombas, he writes this in the drama of Ephesians, participating in the triumph of God. He says, we need to be very careful regarding how we speak of realities in the spiritual realm. We live in an age of wild and irresponsible speculation about the character of heavenly beings and spiritual activities. Uh, I don't really want to open up that can of worms by telling you stories and giving you examples, um, but we could talk about things like some charismatic practices of mapping territories and naming figures that oversee that town or that city or that ever. I've been in a context where the persistent buzz in the sound system was eventually rebuked as being a demonic attack. It's very much more likely to be to do with the way that the electricity and the lighting works and the electricity and the sound system works and they create a buzz. So we, we, we won't open up that can though. Gombas just says we need to be careful. This kind of thing fascinates us to the extent that novels and movies based on action in the spiritual realm enthrill millions and rake in the dollars. You think Frank Peretti back in the day. 
But much of this comes at the expense of distraction from real issues of genuine Christian faithfulness. Another example of this I've done before would be when we think of Jonah. Was Jonah really swallowed by a fish? No, 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 no. It's just an allegory. There's no fish that really swallowed Jonah. Uh, No, 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 they've done, I saw a National Geographic. There's a particular type of whale that lives in the Mediterranean that has an air pocket that is the size of a human. Okay, all right, we can debate all day long whether it's an allegory there to teach us a lesson or whether there really was a fish that totally swallowed the dude kind of thing. Uh, The debate will distract us from, what are we meant to learn from Jonah? I think the point of the story is not really swallowed by a fish or not really swallowed by fish. That, that's not the point of the story. We'll miss the point of the story. We've done series on Jonah. But this is a similar one. Are these spiritual beings, are they real things with a name that fly and zoom in the darkness, or are they, or are they something else? It's like, okay, well, I'll make some suggestions, but irrespective, we've got to deal with the realities in our lives and in our world. So let's not get too caught up on this. Um, Paul does not endorse all the particular aspects of a Jewish heritage regarding the cosmic figures, and he avoids fantastical and fascinating aspects of these figures. He notes their existence mainly to focus on their effects within the human realm. When biblical writers want to talk about large-scale injustice or about systems of economic and social oppression and exploitation, they do this in terms of principalities, powers, and authorities. All right, what's he getting at here? These cosmos grabbers. The reality of a force doesn't equate necessarily to the reality of a being. The reality of a force doesn't necessarily equate to the reality of a being. When a crowd gathers, perhaps in protest to a a shared sense of injustice, uh, we've seen time and time again the way that the crowd can become a mob and it kind of takes on a life of its own. And these, there's these everyday, ordinary people. Maybe one of them's an accountant. And if you're an accountant here, I'm just not wanting to say that you're everyday, ordinary. You're an exceptional accountant. But, you know, there's Arthur the accountant. He's there kind of thing. And um, this mob, this crowd can take on a life of its own. And suddenly Arthur the accountant, who's normally very well behaved and respect other people's property, Suddenly people are throwing bricks and lighting Molotov cocktails and doing all sorts of crazy things. And, and we can't exactly what say, what say what's happened, but the crowd somehow, somehow took on a life of its own. Something, something happened. There's this mob mentality. There's this mob rule that, that seemed to overwhelm these... Arthur the accountant, he's very everyday ordinary. Suddenly he's not. There can be destruction of property and vandalism and angry clashes with police. Crowd has a mind of its own, takes on it. There's something in the air, a certain kind of destructive energy that kind of takes over. I've seen this a couple of times when I was a lot younger, and I don't mean to throw them under the bus, but I will. Um, At one day cricket matches against Australia, my brother, he stood up at certain moments in the middle of this one day cricket match against Australia, and he started hurling things hurling things, very inappropriate things at people like Brett Lee. He he was telling Brett Lee what what he thought about that kind of bowling and and where he should go and what he should do and who he was as a human. And he sat back down. I said, Thomas. Oh, Joe, I said his name. I I didn't want you to know which brother. (laughs) I wasn't going to tell you which of my brothers it was. Um, 
I only have one brother. But um, I said, Thomas, you can't. You can't really say those kinds of things. This is Thomas who drums in the youth band. Who, who he's, this is just a good Christian man. You can't. Oh yeah, I, I know. I know you can't. But well, oh, they're just in the moment in the crowd, and they're just. Oh, I just had to kind of like. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't think that's okay. But well, what happened? Did the anti-demon, or did the demon of anti-Australianism come down and start to influence the crowd? Sorry to our Aussie friends. But. Hurling his abuse. Well, you could say that a principality and power was at work. Not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in that moment, but the God of nationalistic sporting pride and Aussie hatred that Thomas seemed to just dig up from the depths of his being. Well, what are we talking about? Is there a nationalistic anti-Australian being? Or is that an energy and a force and something beyond that kind of began to take hold in the moment. A God of chaos, maybe you could say, or a God of victory. Dehumanizing one way or another. Dehumanizing my brother. Dehumanizing Brett Lee. But there was, he, was, he wasn't, this, this is the whole point, he wasn't the only one. <laughs> there was only a few of us not engaging in that practice. The cosmos grabbers need not be actual beings. They can be forces that human beings themselves create. Not ontological powers at work in the world, but false, God that, false gods that humans empower to have sway and to have energy. False gods that all have salvation promises and sacrifices required and there's their own liturgy and their own worship. And these can be illustrated. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and pick some unusual ones rather than, it's easy to talk about war or money or different things like that. Let, let's pick a couple of unusual ones. Let's talk about the, because my wife's not here, the, the God of consumerism. Because I've talked about that once before. She started heckling. So let, let's just talk about that one. Well, there's a salvation promise. Consumerism offers us a salvation promise. Uh, the, the, if, you, if you really look at consumerism, embedded within the idea of consumerism, is that if you buy this, you'll find peace. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be so relaxed. That'll, that, whatever the, and if you study it, it's, they're called the object of desire. If you get that object of desire, that I, what are they up to now? iPhone, I've got an iPhone 11. What are they up to now? 14? Are we up to 14 or 15? Um, if you get the iPhone 14, the Pro, with the three cameras on the back, the one on the front, you you'd you just be so relaxed. You'd just be so fulfilled. You're like, and, and you start Google searching iPhone 14s and where you can buy them from and the best price and there's not much movement. Apple has this monopoly and there's not much shift from one place to another. But if you change your plan with Vodafone, will they give you some credit towards one? Or if you, if you sh shift across the telecom, will they help you out kind of thing? And so you, you play around with this and you're paying attention to this and it's become this thing that, oh, if I just get that, and you get the iPhone 14. And literally, for about three or four days, you do feel so at peace with the world. And then on day four, you notice up, because you've been Google searching this so much, on Facebook up comes this ad for the coming in January, the iPhone 15. You're like, I've only just got the iPhone 14, and now I need the iPhone 15. Or it could be that camper van, or it could be the spa pool, or it could be the new pair of jeans, or it could be whatever it is kind of thing. These things that kind of, they're the object of desire and we, we're going to find satisfaction. But they're, they're this false God that the minute you get it, it feels so good until you notice something else. 
How many of you got a new car and you've cleaned it every week for up to five weeks? And then you miss the week and then you miss the month. And now your new car doesn't really look like a new car. It's just the car and who really cares? These, these objective desires, that they don't, they don't satisfy. They don't fulfill. They leave us empty. But we live in a world. And there's these priests of the consumerism world. They're known as marketers. And again, if you're a marketer, mark the marketer and Arthur the accountant. I'm not trying to have a go. The marketers and the salespeople that work in the temple that is the cathedral of consumerism known as the mall. With all these icons set up around the more beautiful people. Never, never photos of less than beautiful people. Always the most, if you buy the iPhone 14, you will look like that. I know if you've ever really thought about it, but the purchase of a new phone will not change your look. Just wanting to just put that out there, it's not going to happen. But there's this whole industry bought around it. All you have to do is sacrifice your money to get it. In fact, you don't even have to sacrifice that. We'll let you pay it off over time, or you can put it on credit, or whatever. And ultimately, it enslaves people. It's dehumanizing. It's not life-giving. But if only one of us did that, well, there would be no false god of consumerism. There'd just be one crazy person doing things. But when two people do it, and then when three people do it, and then where hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people do it, and then when millions of people do it within our culture, we all do it at once. What we create, what we empower, is this spirit of consumerism that rules and reigns in heavenly places, that asks us, does your status measure up with that person's status? How are you compared to other people? Like, if you find people at a similar age and stage to you in the same sort of industry that you're in, how do you measure compared to them? What, have, you got a, have you got a Nokia with the snake game? You, you do know they're literally up to iPhone 14. You really need to kind of... So we create this whole atmosphere principalities and powers that rule and reign in our lives that seek our worship. Enough people do it, comes a false God. God of promotion. If you could just get up that next step on the ladder, you'll have made it. You'll have made it. If you could just, that one more promotion, you will have hit the big time. How much easier will it be to pay your mortgage? How much easier will it be to do that holiday? How much you just feel so important and empowered in your industry. You just get that one more promotion. You'll have reputation and status. You'll finally be a somebody. All you need to do is sacrifice just a bit of your time, your family. Uh, you just need to go into the temple. That's the office. Just be the first to arrive, the last to leave. Just do a little bit more in the office there. Uh, give up your evenings and your weekend. Skip your eighth, kid's eighth birthday party. They'll have a ninth after all. So you make these sacrifices to this God of promotion that if you just get that promotion, then it'll all be so much easier and you'll be able to kind of, kind of pull back. The cathedral or temple in this case is the office or the desk or the email or the mobile phone or that business trip. The set prayers are things like, how are you going? And the answer is busy. Because if you say something else, well, that's blasphemy. So you, you have to say, oh, busy, real busy. Oh, things are busy, flat out. If someone says, how, do you, how are you going? And you say, oh, pretty well balanced at the moment. Um, actually just doing 36 hours a week rather than the full 40. So um, yeah, because we're just getting things done. I'm, I just found I'm a lot more productive if I just knuckle down and so I'm knocking off early kind of thing. Well, people don't go, oh, amen, hallelujah. They go, what, what are you doing? Or your boss says, Really? You're only doing 36 hours rather than 50? Well, I'll give you some more stuff to look after. And if you do this, 
will promote you. So you sacrifice all of these things. Again, when enough people are doing this, promotion, status, workaholism becomes a principality and power. Oh, I can't, can't really stop for a Sabbath. Can't, I can't pause for a day. Well, I won't go into the office, but I'll have the computer set up on the dining room table and we'll just check in when it beeps kind of thing. So you sacrifice Sabbath and rest and family and all these different things. And again, if there was just one person that did that, we'd be like, that guy's an idiot. He should be living like we all are. We spend most of our time at the beach relaxing. Why is that one guy doing like 70-hour weeks? That's crazy. But it's not just one guy. Enough of humanity does it. It kind of takes on a life of its own. It becomes a force. It becomes an entity. It becomes a principality and power. It becomes a dark thing in heavenly places that rules over our lives and calls for attention, drags us away, pulls us off course. It's like enough people do that. We take something good of creation. Because I could have done this with I could have done this with wine. I could have done this with money. I could have done this with a thousand different things. These good, appropriate, necessary. I mean, work is a good thing. Work is this beautiful thing that, that we're invited to do. Participate with God in the healing and mending and running of the world and in ways that honor people and lift people up. But all of these things, good parts of creation. If enough people start to worship the good part of creation, it takes on a life of its own and becomes so much more stronger just than what it would have been otherwise. There's, I could have talked about the God of progress. I could have talked about the God of individualism, but that's not really relevant for any of us. could have talked about the God of freedom, but we haven't seen that rear its ugly head for ages, so we won't worry about that one. God of war, God of sex. Well, sex, freedom individualism to a degree, progress, all of these are good and appropriate parts of God's good, good, good creation. You start to worship them though, you empower them instead of being a part of creation, they start to rule and reign over creation. God's ancient and new. The ancients more than us, they understood this. They knew this, they, they acknowledged this. So they'd build a temple to these different gods. They'd create a statue or an idol to these different gods. Uh, I didn't look it up, but the, there's the many-breasted one. Uh, sex is a real thing. Let's make a temple. I think it's Artemis, but I might have that wrong. Um, in Ephesians or Petra. I think it's in Petra. But anyway, there's a temple with this goddess that's carved out, and she's the many-breasted one. Because they knew, hey, sex is a powerful thing. People worship this. We should build a temple and have a god, and then you can make sacrifices to it. They, they, the, the ancients were more honest about this kind of thing. War? War rules and reigns. Let's have a war god. Let's have statues. Let's put swords in their hand. Let's acknowledge this. Dionysus, the god of wine and ecstasy and, and letting your hair down kind of thing. Well, they knew that, so they had a temple and they, they called it that. Us as modern people, we're, we're far too sophisticated to go and build a temple to it. But we'll set up an AP for it or we're allowed to rule and reign over our lives in different Far too sophisticated, and thus, thus we fail to see the way that the common worship of good things brings, brings to life principalities and powers that function as cosmos grabbers, that steal, kill, and destroy. All right, so are there actual spiritual beings, dark forces? I don't know. I've had enough experiences in my life to go, yeah, I think so. I've had some encounters and some experiences and some moments in life where, oh, I've had one with Tremadol where I asked, after I had my 
wisdom teeth taken out, I had to write a I got my wisdom teeth out on Tuesday and I had to write a sermon for Sunday. And on Thursday, I said to my wife, who's a nurse, I said, babe, you need to pray for me. I said, I don't, I don't have any other words. I, don't, I, I think I'm under demonic attack. I'm, I'm hallucinating. I cannot write my sermon. She goes, oh, that's just tramadol. Pull, pulled that away. Left me on the codeine and something else. He's like, oh, that's way better. Wrote a sermon. Put, put me back on the tramadol on the Monday. Oh, yeah, there they are again. Okay. So I've had the tramadol, but I've also had encounters when I've been in India. I had some stuff happen to me that I can't describe any other way than some sort of being, some sort of entity. I've had encounters as a younger Christian with these things. So I want to go, yeah. But I don't want to call the buzz in the sound system a demon. Because, so where do I want to go with that? I want to just live in the tension of those two things. And I want to recognize that probably people are too quick to name things, this and that or the other thing, and too quick to overlook the fact that if we all think that working 70 hours a week is good, that's eventually going to become a principality and power that rules over us. If we all think that like, Getting ahead is what we should all try to do at the expense of our neighbor. That's going to become a principality and power that's going to rule over us. And that's going to actually be dehumanizing. Another way you could talk about, you could talk about that as demonic. It's anti-Christ. It's to lo- not love our neighbor of ourselves. And there's a thousand ways that we do that. And so I think we're maybe too quick to name these dark forces and too slow to realize, oh, the way that we all live pretty much empowers all these things that that maybe a darker force comes to sit behind, maybe. But they're actually, we've, we've lifted up these things within creation. So it's and both. Either way, Paul writes this in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And then it says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The powers and authorities. The cosmos grabbers. You've got the powers and authorities of the Roman Empire and the might of the Roman Empire to be able to wield death upon whoever they decided to wield death upon. Well, Christ is raised from the raised from the dead and triumphs over even the power to wield death. You've got the cosmic powers, the cosmic grabbers. Christ rules over that. So whether or not the powers and authorities are dark beings or human-empowered forces that take on a life of their own, violence, greed, power of empire, actual beings, fear of death, whatever it might be, Christ defeats them all and makes a spectacle of them, the triumph of the cross. Christ is all and above and over all. They've been exposed as counterfeit, and are false and are to be resisted. We're to resist the principalities and powers. How are we to resist them? We're to resist them with the armor of God, which we'll have to talk about next Sunday. So let's stand to our feet this morning. Let's stand to our feet, not fearful, because the principalities and powers have been defeated and exposed. Not, not, not hunting demons. Not ignorant either. The reality is, if we 
are careful and pay attention, it's, it's very unlikely that Legion is out to get you. If you know your gospel stories. It's very unlikely that Legion is out to get you. Nor gore from love and thunder. But promotion might be out to get you. Status might be out to get you, out to get you. Workaholism might be out to get you. Sex might be out to get you. Far more likely that these things that just become a cultural norm that we think are harmless but are actually destructive, more likely that one of them is out to get us. So we pay attention and we're careful. And next Sunday we'll start talking about the armor of God. Because we're wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But the good news is through the cross all has been defeated. We just need to pay attention and walk with Christ. Table has been prepared, not that of the church, but the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, made ready for those that love the Lord a little and those that would like to love Him more. All are welcome at this table, the faith-filled and the doubters, the certain and the uncertain, those that have followed Christ faithfully, those that have tried but failed. There's always space for you at the table. Not Come not because of your own goodness, but come because of the goodness of God. Come and meet the risen Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Come to where heaven and earth overlap the table of the Lord and receive the life of Christ as your own, the grace, the peace, the goodness of God. The emblems that remind us that every principality and power has been defeated. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Please don't be shy. Come, there's two tables down the back, one here at the front. Come and receive the life of Christ as your own this morning.